0: Welcome everybody back. Steve with I'm Coming at you again with Michael Grainy from the Center of Economic and Social Justice for Part 13 of our series on socialism. From the Metallica song, yes, I grew up, don't rend your garments, listen to Metallica and their song, and Justice for All, this is going to play on that, Economic Justice for All. So, Michael, now that I just eliminated all my fans, because how dare me. <laughs> <laughs> well, one, I don't, I, I never have knowingly listened to Metallica, although I probably have heard it. And two, what I was thinking of was more the 1986 U.S. Bishop's Pastoral, Economic Justice for All. So, or that, that was another one. Yeah, that was, that, was, that was second or third on the list. Yeah, which there are some good things in that pastoral. There are some other things which I happen to think are not quite so good, which we will address in a future video. But today, we're going to get into the fundamental principles of economic justice, as we understand them within what we call the just third way of economic personalism, which I wish we had a really snappy name like capitalism or socialism. Uh, But what we have, instead of individualism, collectivism and personalism, and they have their capitalism and socialism, we have economic personalism, which doesn't quite fit into a label very easily. I mean, not, not short and punchy. But uh, where we, or I should say, the just third way of economic personalism uh, comes from two strains, Pope uh, Pius XI's social doctrine, which we covered last week in the video on the act of social justice. and in economic terms, the work of Mortimer Adler, you know, the renowned Aristotelian philosopher, or I should say Aristotelian Thomist philosopher. It's almost impossible today to talk about Aristotle without talking about Aquinas, at least in any meaningful terms. And Louis Kelso, who was—who who is probably best known as the inventor of the employee stock ownership plan, by means of which workers without savings and without taking deductions from payroll can acquire ownership of the companies that employ them which as mortimer adler noted in the preface to the book they co-authored the first book they co-authored uh was what leo the and a number of other thinkers were talking about that capital should be as broadly owned as possible. The problem was that prior to Kelso and Adler, there was no financially feasible and ethical means of achieving that goal. Because either you're talking about coercive redistribution or hidden redistribution of some sort if you're locked into the framework of either capitalism or socialism. This is why, for example, Uh, If you're a capitalist locked into your system, you will look at economic personalism and say it's socialism. If you're a socialist locked into your socialist paradigm, you will say that economic personalism is capitalist. So it's actually outside the capitalist slash socialist framework. But uh, I think we covered that in a couple of earlier videos. So in... But to get to the point here, in 1958, Kelso and Adler, and there's an interesting story behind it, which we won't get into, co-authored or published uh, a book called, they, that they titled, very clever, but actually misleading title, The Capitalist Manifesto. Uh, this, of course, was in the wake of the McCarthy hearings, so it was just the right title to get onto the New York Times bestseller list, which it did. Uh, unfortunately, capitalist doesn't describe what Kelso and Adler were talking about. And later, Kelso decided he was unhappy with the word capitalism and ended up with binary economics, uh, which we will get into in a, in a few minutes, I hope. Uh, but in the capitalist manifesto, they defined capitalism as it, basically an intensive use of capital instruments in production. Well, we define capitalism as concentrated private ownership of capital, just as we define socialism either as the abolition of private property in capital or concentrated public ownership. And of course, that includes control of capital. One of the first things you learn if if you go to law school and take a course in property is that you may be the nominal owner of something, You may hold title to it, but that doesn't mean you're the owner. Here's your quick course in, in, in property law. Uh, Blackacre is the generic name for an estate. A owns Blackacre. He has title to it. But he conveys to B all rights and control and enjoyment of the fruits of Blackacre. Legal question who is the real owner. Most people would say, well, A is because he has title. No, a court would say B does because he has control and enjoyment of the fruits. This is why Kelso pointed out in a 1957 article in the American uh, Law Journal, let's see, no, the Journal of the American, (laughs) I can't remember. the American Bar Association, sorry, all the lawyers are not going to sue me. Uh, well, actually, I shouldn't encourage them. They'll do it anyway. Uh, he pointed out that uh, in law, control is ownership in all codes of law. So you may own title, but if someone else controls it, you're not the real owner. And this is and Henry George, you know, the agrarian socialist, actually based his whole theory on this assumption by saying that. If the state takes all profits from land, you know, either sale or use, as a single tax, the you know, anybody can own it, but the state is the real owner. The state becomes the universal landlord, and this is why some people will say, well, he didn't abolish, Henry George didn't abolish title, therefore he's not a socialist. No, he was a socialist, an agrarian socialist, but still a socialist. Now, in the Capitalist Manifesto, which, as I said, doesn't really describe capitalism, uh, Kelso and Adler presented a, we'll call this revolutionary in a good sense, uh, and yet, and also a traditionally Thomist, that is Aristotelian, with uh, certain corrections by Aquinas, understanding of the principles of economic justice, which is, they gave three And actually, it was probably Adler working with what Kelso gave him. Uh, For our purposes, and to be as brief as possible, the substance with respect to the principles of economic justice in the Capitalist Manifesto can be found in the preface, which was by Adler, and which he credits these ideas to Kelso, and in Chapter 5. And you can get the book as a free download from the CESJ website uh it's www.cesj.org it's under resources on the menu bar free ebooks of course free plug for census fidelium be sure to visit the census fidelium store first so that you can load up on stuff that you do have to pay for (laughs) reasonable prices uh and support the apostolate Uh, get your christmas gifts ready (laughs) yes makes a great christmas gift only it doesn't slice potatoes or peel anything, at least that I know of. Maybe you should add a vegetable peeler. Uh, And what they did was in Kelso and Adler, uh, not Steve and I, uh, Kelso and Adler in Chapter 5 of the Capitalist Manifesto gave three principles of economic justice. These were participation, distribution, and what they called limitation. We have refined limitation and expanded it to social justice. We'll get into that. Uh, in 1961, they co-authored another book. I tend to think of this book, which is so much shorter than The Capitalist Manifesto, as actually an expanded journal article, which takes nothing away from it. What it does is, it, oh, the title is The New Capitalists. and. What he's talking about, of course, is as capitalist as the Capitalist Manifesto, which means it's not capitalist. Uh, The subtitle of the New Capitalist is significant. It's a proposal to free economic growth from the slavery of savings. That does not mean not using savings to finance new capital. What it meant was, and Kelso and Adler made this clear in the book, shifting from past savings which, equal, which is equal to past reductions in consumption to accumulate a surplus in order to finance new capital, to shifting financing to future savings, which is not past reductions in consumption, but future increases in production. Because if you know anything about banking theory, and of course you're going to learn it all in about two seconds here, if you can monetize existing accumulations of wealth, you can monetize through the, through the monetary system, future increases in wealth, because what you do, it's called credit. What you do is say, I can't pay you now. I can't deliver wealth to you now for this thing, but, uh, next year or in 90 days or whatever, I will deliver it to you and I will sign a promise to that effect. You just created money, but not based on past reductions in consumption, but on future increases in production. Kelso and Adler called this future savings as opposed to past savings. And by opening up access for every child, woman, and man to be able to use future savings to purchase new capital and finance capital formation, everyone can become an owner. It's not limited to people who are already wealthy who of course are the only ones who can afford to cut you know their consumption and still have enough to purchase these increasingly expensive capital instruments that are carrying out the bulk of production today this is what kelso and adler saw as the basic problem with the american system or actually the global economic system was that either the state which could create fake money to purchase to finance new capital formation, or private wealthy people who could afford to save to purchase new capital formation, shut out the rest of us. But what Pope Leo XIII said he wanted in Rerum Novarum in 1891 was as many as possible of the people to become owners. Problem, he didn't really give a financially feasible way to do it. He said, raise wages. Well, if you raise wages, what you're doing is increasing the cost of production, raising the price level for everyone, and the workers and the rest of the consumers, their families and dependents, end up worse off than before, because now they're paying more and getting much less. And the, the whole Keynesian system is geared toward, how do you shift what little wealth the wage worker gets to producers so that they can afford to finance new capital so that the workers will have jobs? Well. Why do they need to have jobs if they can own the machines that are doing the work? This was Kelso and Adler's whole point. Now, therefore, the fundamental idea in the Capitalist Manifesto and the New Capitalists was that expanded capital ownership can be financed without redistribution. And this answers the the objection of you know the typical capitalist today that how are some how are people without ownership supposed to get ownership except by taking it from me well you don't own the future and i think you know let's let's not get into the pan, whole pandemic thing but in a normal year even in a slow growth economy the united states adds approximately 2 trillion dollars worth of new capital and that's whether you're talking public capital or privately owned capital or whatever 2 trillion you divide that you know up equitably among every US citizen or res- resident and that's about 10 or 12,000 dollars of new capital each year that nobody owns until it's financed if you make it possible for ordinary people to be able to finance new capital You've made it possible for ordinary people to become capital owners without taking it from anybody else, simply by focusing on future capital, which doesn't even exist yet and therefore can't even be owned. Now, the whole Keynesian system and the past savings system says, oh, no, the only people who can own future capital are those who already own capital. And Kelso and Adler said, no, that's not true. If you use advanced financing techniques, anybody can own. Uh, And they'll say, but can anybody manage? Well, how many of the rich people actually manage their own own wealth? No, they hire somebody else to do it. And, of course, if you and I had enough income, we could hire somebody to manage our wealth for us. At this point, I'm not sure that it would be worth it for anybody to manage anything I got, but that's a different issue. (laughs) Now, uh, I think I just skipped ahead of some of my notes here. I tend to do that. You, you, you never noticed that in any of these videos, have you, that I tend to get lost a little bit. <clears throat> uh, so that, that was actually a, a, a digression into practice. I didn't really mean to get into that because today we're discussing pure theory, or at least trying to. I will say, however, that... If you manage to make uh, equality of economic opportunity operational, I have a sneaking hunch that you're going to solve all the problems with racism or at least most of them, uh, discrimination and quite a few other problems. That doesn't mean we won't have problems. We'll probably invent a whole new, a whole batch of new ones. But I think you would remove the underlying cause. Because it's noticed who's out there demonstrating, not the people who are truly oppressed and not the people who truly have what they need, but the people who have a little, want more, and are demanding the justice that they really ought to get. Uh, Whether or not they're actually getting it, that's a whole new issue, and I don't get into that. But to give another commercial for economic personalism, If everyone has access to the means of acquiring and possessing private property and capital, I think you'll see a much more just society. Uh, But as I said, we're trying to get into theory today, and eventually I'll get around to it. Uh, So to begin with, what do we mean by economic justice? Okay, I took this, as I said, I hate to read quotes, but other people say things much better than I, which if you've been watching these videos, you know very well, uh, but the definition of economic justice that we use in uh, CESJ, the Center for Economic and Social Justice, is that economic justice is a subset of social justice. It encompasses the moral principles that guide people in creating and main, creating, maintaining, and perfecting economic institutions. Now, remember, last week we discussed the act of social justice. Here we're discussing. The application of social justice in the realm of economics, which is why we can say that economic justice comes under social justice, but social justice, when it's applied in the realm of economics, comes under the heading of economic justice. It may sound confusing at first, but it, but it makes sense. I hope. That's it. Anyway, these institutions, now, remember, institutions are social habits. This is like virtues and vices are individual habits. Institutions are social habits, because we are both individual and social, what Aristotle called political. Another digression. Uh, These institutions determine how each person earns a living, enters into contracts, exchanges goods and services with others, and otherwise produces an independent material foundation for economic subsistence. Now, I remember some years ago, I used the word subsistence, and somebody jumped all over it. He, of course, was an academic economist. I meant simply by subsistence, this is how you subsist. In other words, whether it's good, bad, or at a high level or a low level, I just meant this is how you you live. You subsist. To him, he thought I was referring to people should only be allowed a bare subsistence. Nothing more than just the most beggarly food, clothing, and shelter. And that I was depriving people of their due, and the state should take over and just distribute what people need from these greedy, wealthy bastards who are keeping everyone else in their place. I "I think what we had there was a failure to communicate. Of course, I also said something about abolishing the wage system and instituting an ownership system. Oh, he went absolutely ballistic about that one. You're talking about abolishing wages. I said, I never said anything of the sort. What I said was abolishing the wage system, which is that most people, or actually as many people as possible, will have their income only from wages and welfare, which is a pretty lousy way to live because it creates a nation of dependence. And as we learned in a prior video, a condition of permanent dependency is the same as slavery actually, it is slavery. Permanent dependency was the euphemism used in the Antebellum South. I mean, our, their peculiar institution and way of life consisted of making as many people as possible permanent dependence on them. Nowadays, of course, the goal of government seems to be to make as many people as possible permanent dependence on the state through wages and welfare, but that's another issue. In fact, the universal basic income if it were instituted as people are have been proposing, it would basically mean that everyone is a permanent dependent of the state. Now, when we at CESJ talk about universal basic income, we say universal basic income derived from a universal basic ownership of capital so that you do have a core of what you own producing for you to provide a basic income, which is somewhat different from the UBI that people talk about. Now, what is the goal of economic justice? Finally, to return to our to our subject here, it says, the ultimate purpose of economic justice is to free each person economically to develop to the full extent of his or her potential. Now, what that means is that a lot of what you hear coming from capitalism or the capitalists I should say and almost virtually everything you hear from socialists is the not why are we here but what do people want to live the good life here in this life and that's it just a material life that you know is adequate and sufficient for everything with all your wants and needs with all your needs and your uh, reasonable wants met in in the most efficient way possible. They always use efficient or the most humane, but they never seem to talk about, well, why are we even living? And so that is why, excuse me, that is why when we define economic justice and the goal of economic justice, it's to enable that person to engage in the unlimited work beyond economics. Life is not just simply the material, meeting your material needs. This is the work of the mind and the spirit done for its own intrinsic value and satisfaction. This is what Aristotle called the work of civilization. In other words, meeting your, your full human potential. Why are you even here as a human being instead of just a dog or, you know, cattle in the field or just a slave doing whatever your master bids you, whether that slave is a private person or the state? This is what Aristotle was talking about. Our goal in this life is to become virtuous. That is, to fill your human, to become, virtue means humanness. Actually, it means maleness, but we're, we're. Today, it means every, whether you're a child, woman, or a man, you're a full human being and you're human in the same way. So, becoming virtuous means you're becoming more fully human all the time. And of course, to a Christian, and as far as I know, to Jews and Muslims, and to people of most other faiths and philosophies, this fits you for to be with God or what if you worship gods in heaven become closer, by becoming closer to your own nature, you become closer to God in whose image and likeness we are made. That doesn't mean we look like him when we look in the mirror. Uh, if God looks like me, God help God. I mean, that's all I can say. <laughs> uh, now, the, uh, the, the framework of economic justice, it isn't just doling out to people what they need or what they think they need or want, uh, but it actually is very easy once you get to it. I, I say it's as easy as one, two, three, four. It's a little bit more complicated and more difficult than as easy as one, two, three, or A, B, C, but it's it's pretty close. Uh, so it's it, basically four things that we have to think about when we want to understand the framework of economic justice. One, it's based on the economic... Uh, Excuse me, it's based on the dignity of the human person. And you notice how cleverly we put this together that one is one, the human person. The single human person. If the dignity of a single human person is violated, you cannot say that your society is economically just. Two, binary, which means two, economics. As I said, did you notice how clever this is? And of course, it can't be that clever if I have to point it out to you. I'm waiting for the count from *Sesame Street*: one, two. <laughs> or, or, or we could do like you know, here's the, the the four top the top the top four principles of economic justice. I thought, well, no, let me start with four. You know, I thought I'll get Letterman to do it for me. I was close to playing Michael Jack- oh, the Jackson Five: ABC, easy as one, two, three. <laughs> yeah, except it doesn't quite work because it's one, two, three, four. Uh, now I'm going to have that in my head while I'm trying to give this this talk here. Shame on you! I said I, it's hard enough to get these earworms out of your head. ABC, um, easy 2, one, two, three. We will now pause for station identification and get back to our talk here. I said three, the three principles of economic justice, and then four, the four pillars of a just market economy. See how neatly that all fits together? One, two, three, four. There's n- a nice natural progression. Uh, now, let's talk about human dignity, the dignity of the human person. Uh, what is dignity? Now, what pops into a lot of people's minds is uh somebody in a top hat and tails or something. Now that's dignified, or somebody who's a pompous stuffed shirt. That, that may be the colloquial meaning of it, but it's not really accurate. Dignity comes from Latin, dignitas, is respect for human rights, respect for someone's person. It's basically respect. It's, you know, defined in the dictionary as the quality or state of being worthy, honored, or esteemed. And within economic personalism, with its focus on the dignity of each and every human person, which means every single human being, because all human beings are human persons automatically. Uh, That's basic natural law theory. All human beings have dignity by nature. This is why it's called uh, conforming to your nature is becoming virtuous, which is in conformity with your dignitas as a human being, your dignity. And all persons, all human beings, are automatically persons and are thus, as political animals, automatically members of society. I mean, this all fits together within natural law theory. You don't have to be Catholic, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, pagan, or anything else. All you have to do is understand the basic principles of reason. This is why the Catholic Church teaches as a fundamental and infallible precept that knowledge of God's existence, and here's the catch, the, the important part, and knowledge of God's and knowledge of the natural law written in the hearts of all men, meaning in all human beings, may be known by the force and light of human reason alone. That doesn't mean it is. It says it may be. So that faith and reason are not in conflict, or at least should never be in conflict. Because they are both aspects of truth, and truth cannot contradict itself. That that's your moral philosophy for today. Uh, therefore, all human beings, whether you're a child, women, men, and technically even an unborn fetus, but that we get into you know basic matters of expedience and practicality here, all have natural rights to life, liberty and access to the means of acquiring and possessing private property. This does not mean that an individual person may not have what they call accidentals that get in the way of doing these, but each and every single human person, meaning every single human being, has these natural rights. You can't get away from it unless you want to redefine human beings as other than human persons or as other than human. Simply, you can't get away from it. Now, as I said, we we can't, even though it sounds like I'm getting, you know, deep into the weeds here, all I'm giving is the barest outline of, you know, economic justice. Uh, There is an incredible amount of additional information on the CESJ website if you really want to get into it, or you can read the books. I recommend that if you get the Capitalist Manifesto, and as I said, it's downloadable free, on the CESJ website, or you can go to the Kelso Institute, and I don't remember their web address, but you can find it easily just by Googling Kelso Institute. Uh, read the preface and chapter five, if nothing else. Uh, of course, you should read the rest of it. But Chapter, f- the preface and chapter five will give you the basic background and go into much more detail than I can give here. You have a book on um, economic personhood, don't you? Uh, Personalism, economic personalism, Uh, and it was supposed to come out quite a time ago. We finally got the text finalized, and with any luck, it should be out this week. Now, having said that, it won't be. I mean, this is the way things work. I uh, applied to to get the pre-assigned control number from the Library of Congress, and I told them October. Hoping it would still be in September because I was promised absolutely drop dead it would be at the end of July, but we won't get into that. <clears throat> things happen. <laughs> I'll say things. <laughs> now, binary economics. You know, this is the number two, which, of course, is binary. And there are some certain principles of binary economics. And as I said, this is the barest outline don't think that you know binary economics just from listening to me today or tonight for that matter or if you're up in the middle of the night early this morning Uh, whenever wherever you are yes we will find you justice will out you justice will out (laughs) see labor is the intrinsic human factor of production this is why it's called binary economics because it divides the factors of production into two one human labor the intrinsic human factor of production. Two, capital, which is the extrinsic non human factor of production. Also, just basically cut to the quick. You know, it's either human and thus preeminent, or it's not human and thus should come under the control of actual human beings, not abstractions like the collective or anything else. In theory, there is nothing that can't be owned except for human beings as you know the precept of roman law was everything has its proper owner unfortunately the romans also included human beings in that which we do not at least us, i hope we don't anyway now in within the principles of binary economics both labor and capital are owned <coughs> see labor is not a human being. A human being has labor, which means a human being owns labor. And that ownership means the same in both cases. You own your labor in exactly the same way you own your capital. The difference, of course, is that labor is inextricably bound to your physical being. But of course, you own your physical being the same way you own something uh, your, your capital or your house or your car or something. Now, yes, cosmically, we do not own ourselves. God owns us. But God isn't going to appear in a court of law to assert his rights. What we're concerned with right now is the relations between not God and man, but man and man. Uh, so, yes, I will admit that God is the ultimate owner of everything, but he doesn't enter into this discussion in at this level. Uh, And as I said, ownership means the same in both cases, whether it's labor or capital. And both labor and capital are productive in the same sense. I mean, all things being equal, there is no difference between a marketable good or service produced by a human being or produced by a machine. Now, there may be certain uh, uh, aesthetic qualities that being handmade will convey to something. But in the physical being of the the product or service, there is no difference. Personally, I happen to prefer handmade for a number of things, but that's my aesthetic appreciation of something. It is not, you know, the economic. Uh, even though I may put a higher economic value on something that is handmade, or handcrafted, or designed, or something, and. Uh, so, yeah. Now, now we come to number three: the three principles of economic justice. And as I said, they, you know, Kelso and Adler gave them as participation, distribution, and limitation. We give them as participation or participative justice. See, Kelso and Adler stated principles. We. Elevate, refine, and develop those principles into actual virtues, sub, excuse me, subtypes of justice. Uh, distribution or distributive justice. And then instead of limitation, we say the feedback and corrective correction or social the, the feedback and correction principle or social justice, which they called limitation. And We'll get to social why social justice, we think, is better than limitation in just a minute. But first, we're going to cover what we call participative justice. Now, uh, I recall hearing of a conversation that uh, Father William Faree, whom we talk, spoke of in the in the video on the act of social justice, he and Norman Curland, president of CESJ, and Father Faree was a co-founder, having a discussion on participation. Father Free was willing to admit a principle of participation, but not a virtue of participative justice. Uh, They didn't get a chance to talk about it because uh, Norm and Father Free only knew each other for about a year. But my my analysis is that... Participative justice as a virtue is necessarily implied in St. Thomas Aquinas's analogy of being. In other words, if everyone has not only the right, but the obligation to participate in the common good, that is in society, which is what participative justice is about especially in the economic realm where everyone should have equal access to the opportunity and means to participate fully in the economic process. So we think that we are fully justified in describing this as participative justice, merely than saying it's an application of the analogy of being by means of which all human beings have equal rights. Uh, Now, under participative justice, of course, everyone has the equal opportunity to acquire and possess private property in capital, which means not the physical thing, but control over and enjoyment of the fruits of production, whatever the capital or or the property produces. That's what private property consists of and it also means the equality of opportunity to engage in productive work and this does not guarantee equal results remember i said equal access to and equal opportunity and access to the means to acquire ownership not necessarily what you're going to do with it I, i mean if you choose to let your your property lie fallow and do nothing with it then why should you derive any income from it you're not doing anything with it but if you rent it out or you put it into use yourself why well, of course yes you should be you should receive the fruits of ownership as they call it now that is why it you know participative justice does require equal rights even though it does not guarantee equal results it requires equal rights to produce by by means of your labor as a worker and as with using your capital as an owner. So, whichever one, whether you're working with your hands or your capital is working for you, you are equally entitled to the fruits of that ownership. Now, now we come to distributive justice. And as we went into in some length in some of the earlier videos, especially those covering Monsignor John A. Ryan's thought. Distributive justice does not mean distributing to people what they need. It is, uh, it, 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 it's not a euphemism for what the socialists call social justice. It is, in fact, a classical virtue defined by Aristotle and by Aquinas as referring to, if you contribute, and I'm over, I'm simplifying this, if you contribute, say, 10% to an endeavor, you are due 10% of the results, whether it's a loss or a gain. It, it's a pro rata distribution of the results of a, uh, a cooperative endeavor or a participative endeavor. I mean, if you're going at it uh, as a sole individual and you put everything in, of course you're due 100% of the results, good or bad. Now, so distributive justice in, economic personalism and under of course economic justice is it's the outtake principle which i i just described if you contribute 10% or 50% or 75% to something to to a communal endeavor then you are due 10% 50% or 75% of the results uh this is with commutative justice, as I said, it's the most classical form of justice, and that's the way it's described in the Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Catholic Church, which is a big, thick document that you probably don't want to read through unless you're really fascinated by this stuff. I forget which paragraph it's in, but it, it was an attempt to correct people who think that distributive justice means distribution on the basis of need. That's charity or an expedient welfare distribution. Now, as I said, it was a particular virtue defined by Aristotle and Aquinas, and it has specific you know, uh, parameters. Input 10%, you get 10%. Uh, it relates to the exchange or market value of each person's economic contributions. You know, if you, uh, I don't know, just assume that I'm saying if you contribute 10%, you get 10% every time I say one of these points. Now, what it means is that every single individual has the right to receive a proportionate market determined share of the value of the marketable goods and services he produces or she with his labor, capital, or both. That's all it means. It doesn't mean that you nip in and say, well, you know, you really should have much more than that, so we're going to take it from A and give it to B. No. That's either uh, an expedient to keep society running, or it's basically coercion, redistribution for the purposes of the state, or something else, especially if it's involuntary. Charity must be voluntary, or it's not a virtue. Now we get to social justice or limitation, an expanded concept of what Kelso and Elder called limitation. Uh, It's social justice as applied in economics within the realm of, you know, within the framework of economic justice. It's the feedback and corrective principle. In other words, if not everyone has equal access to opportunity and the means to participate in the economic process that's the job of social justice you have to go in figure out what's wrong and fix it so that people do have equality of opportunity and access to the means to participate if say for instance someone's in a coma and can't participate well then the job of social justice in that particular a uh, situation would be: What is preventing that person from participating? Well, there's no one to to manage that person's ownership of anything. So what social justice would say is, let us appoint some person to handle it for them, just the way parents handle the the, the affairs of their children until the children can handle it themselves. Uh, Kelso in a rather This is probably uh, uh, not acceptable these days, but he said, I could build ownership into a wooden Indian, meaning that you don't actually have to be able to do anything to be an owner and receive the benefits of ownership. All you need is to hire somebody to handle it for you. This is what the rich do all the time. In fact, some of these rich uh, hire people that take care of so much for them that they don't have any idea how to survive in regular life. I remember reading some articles about that where some of these rich kids go off to school and they are completely at sea. You mean I have to figure out a way to get meals? I have to you know, figure out a way to do laundry? I actually have to walk to class instead of having somebody drive me? That's exaggeration, of course, but not much. But some of the cases they came up with, this article, it was surreal. Uh, Now, what social justice does within the framework of economic justice is it governs participative and distributive justice. If participative justice and distributive justice are not working properly, as I said, suppose you have someone in a coma who can't participate. Well, then you figure out a way that they can participate. And if someone is, say, contributing 10% to something but receiving 5% or others are contributing 10% and receiving 15%, then there is a need for social justice to come in and fix that so that people receive a proper distribution according to their inputs. Now, what social justice also does within economics is restore Say's law of markets. Now remember what Say's law of markets is that production equals income, therefore supply generates its own demand and demand its own supply. That is a gross oversimplification. But what Say's law assumes is that if you produce something, you receive the full benefit of it. If you're not receiving the full benefit of it, it requires an act of social justice to fix matters or or restructure matters so that you do receive the full benefit of what you produce. Now, social justice also puts aggregate production and aggregate consumption into balance, which is related to restoring Say's law of markets. It's it's how it does it. Uh, It also realigns participative justice and distributive justice when the system violates either principle. As we said, I mean, some of these things sound redundant, but it's it basically, it, it is saying the same thing in a different way to make it more clear, I hope. Uh, uh, it also includes, th- this is it gets this from Kelso and Adler, social justice within economics includes a concept of limitation so that it discourages greed, prevents monopolies and other barriers to full participation. See, simply saying limitation doesn't say anything about participation, which should be part of it since it's one of the principles of economic justice. Now, social justice in economics also means that everyone has the moral responsibility to organize with others in solidarity to restructure the institutions of the social order So that in the economic realm, if something is preventing people from participating, you fix it. If people aren't getting a just distribution, you fix it. But you can't do this alone. You have to organize with others because what you're talking about is economic institutions, not just individual habits. Now, it is also social justice is consistent with the principle of subsidiarity. So it's not somebody else who is charged with helping to restructure economic institution. It's you and you have a responsibility to organize with others to do so. You know, in a way, uh, even though most people say that, Oh, you're talking about organizing labor unions. Well, that is one aspect of it. And it's probably the most general and uh, It's the way most people understand it, but it's far too limited. What It it doesn't really get to the heart of the matter, which is that how do you make workers or basically non-owners put them on a par with owners? Mere organization won't do it. It's turning non-owners into owners. This is why we talk about, instead of, you know, some people say, well, we should have guilds. Well, they don't seem to realize that the medieval guild was an association of owners if you didn't own you couldn't be a guildsman as, as a matter unless they redefined what a guild meant so a guild was not simply a Catholic labor union because in most labor unions actually I would assume in all labor unions uh, you don't need to own in order to be a member any more than even the craft unions which once re- pretty much required that you be an owner, you don't have to own anything either. You just have to meet the qualifications. Uh, The distinction between trade unions and labor unions has pretty much uh, disappeared over time. You'll probably get a trade unionist or a labor unionist calling in or commenting that, oh, no, I'm completely wrong because of this, that, and the other thing. But most people will not see any difference between the two. Not these days. the late Walter Ruther, who was head of the UAW, uh, the United Auto Workers. He saw the problem. He actually came across Kelso's work, Louis Kelso's work, uh, in the mid-60s, I think. Prior to that, he had been called a socialist and he didn't deny it. But then somehow he came across uh, Kelso's work and it was like a light switch went on. And he started the citizens crusade against poverty and he started agitating for, you know, union members becoming owners, not unions, that's syndicalism, but actually, you know, the workers becoming owners. I think he, he toured a Ford plant one time and the, the Ford executive who was showing him around says, say, Walter, you're going to have a tough time collecting union dues from those um, you know, from the machines. And Ruther immediately snapped back, you'll have a harder time selling them automobiles. Uh, <laughs> uh, but Ruther actually testified before Congress on the necessity for worker ownership. He said, if you want to keep America competitive in the global marketplace, don't keep raising wages fixed wages and benefits. That just increases costs. What you do is... Take increases out of the bottom line after costs have been taken out, taken out of profits. And what gives people the right to receive profits is ownership. So he was saying as many as possible of the people should become owners. And then he was killed in an air, He died in an airplane crash. And there's people to this day who think that uh, he was killed because he was advocating worker ownership. But I think that's getting a little bit too far into conspiracy theory. Even though in my darker moments I may agree with it, <laughs> actually, Dr. Norman Kurland, who is president of CESJ, worked on the Citizens' Crusade Against Poverty. Uh, I've, I've read the congressional, you know, testimony that Ruther gave. It's fascinating. I mean, he, he knew he knew what he was talking about. Unfortunately, the unions didn't talk, didn't listen to him. They kept ratcheting up fixed wages and benefits, and guess where most of American industry is these days. It's not in the United States. Now, this all brings us, this slight digression brings us back to uh, what social justice within the realm of economic justice does. It's applying social justice to the common good of specific economic institutions brings these institutions into conformity with the demands of the common good of all society. See, you can't separate economic life from political life, from domestic life, or anything else the way a lot of people want to. You have to integrate them, even though you may want to separate, well, oh, actually not may, you do want to separate, you know, church, state, and family. They are different societies, civil, domestic, and religious, but they do interact. There's no wall of separation between them the way Hugo Black, you know, the Supreme Court justice, who did a few other things like sign the internment order for Japanese-Americans during World War II, which we won't get into at this point, Uh, even though I've known people who were interned. Uh, Okay, we've been, as you can see, I got off my notes again. And so that was what social justice does, The the three principles of economic justice, participation, distribution, and social justice. Participative justice, (laughs) distributive, one of these days I'll learn to speak English. Distributive justice and social justice. Now we get to the four pillars of a just market economy. Notice the progression, one, two, three, four. We've come to number four now. And the four pillars are widespread direct capital ownership, limited economic role for the state, free, open, and (laughs) non-malistic non monopolistic markets and restoration of the rights of private property. Now, the first one, of course, is familiar to anybody who is familiar with Rerum Novarum or Quadra Ano or distribute the distributism of Chesterton and Belloc or quite a number of other things. Widespread direct capital ownership is, and where did I put it in my notes? Uh, as I said, I'm going blind, and once in a while, I can actually. Uh, this means not just you know your your tiny little small farm or a token amount, and if you can't you know do that, uh, then it's not worth it. It means individually or in free association with others. Uh, a lot of distributors, for example, forget that Chesterton actually said that if an enterprise must be large, and frankly, today, you're kind of stuck with that. Uh, Otherwise, you're going to have a lot of people starving to death. It should be owned on shares by the workers. We take that a step further. We say it should be owned on shares by as many people as possible. There's no reason why a capital-intensive industry should be owned by just a few workers. Why not cut the community in on it? The people who are, why not cut the customers in on it? If they're owners, you can keep prices down and still deliver a higher quality at a lower price. So that it's not, but the real thing, the real issue with, with capital ownership and Leo Thirteenth made this pretty clear. It's not just income. If all you were concerned about was income, then the socialists would be right. However you get income to people, that's all that matters. George Bernard Shaw said this to Chesterton. Belloc put it into his uh, essay on the restoration of property. If all we were talking about was income, if that's all that mattered, then all we've been saying is worthless. We don't need to talk about anything else. Who cares about ownership if what you're talking about is income? The important thing in ownership is control and right to receive the fruits, not just need. Private property is a natural right It is not simply income, and that's all that matters. It's the right to receive that income, the fruits of ownership, and to control it. As Daniel Webster said exactly 200 years ago, power naturally and necessarily follows property. We went into this at some length in earlier videos. But in order to become virtuous, you have to exercise, you have to perform, you know, build habits of doing you know, virtuous habits, habits of doing good. Well, you can't carry out acts unless you have power to do so. And power follows property. That was Daniel Webster's point. Now, of course, he used it as a in an argument against extending the franchise, you know, the voting franchise, to adult white males who didn't own property. He was arguing against that, which is kind of backwards. What he should have been doing is saying, How do we make certain that everybody, not just adult white males, own property? This way we can all become equal. Remember, as I said, I think if you solve, you know, the ownership issue, you'll solve the race issue. You'll solve a lot of other issues, too. And in my personal opinion, you'll also solve the gay marriage issue and the abortion issue. I think that these will fall of their own dead weight once the average person has property and thus power. That's, the, that's my personal opinion, however. And uh, we can discuss that at some length later. <laughs> now, the this is why in rerum novarum, the important property is so important that Leo Thirteenth made it the centerpiece of rerum novarum, which, of course, a lot of people gloss over for the simple reason that they didn't understand any financially feasible and ethically just way that people could become owners. But that's not the point here. The point is that the law, therefore, should favor ownership, and its policy should be to induce as many as possible of the people to become owners. And then, unfortunately, he gave the worst possible way, except for redistribution, by means of which people could become owners, pay them more, which raises prices and makes it impossible for them to save so that they can purchase capital. Now, limited economic role for the state. This is uh, the the easiest way to say this is again to quote Leo the 13th. Man precedes the state and possesses prior to the formation of any state the right of providing for the subsistence of his body. It doesn't mean just a bare subsistence, it means what you need to live what Aristotle called the good life of virtue, so that you can become virtuous and prepare yourself for your final end, whatever it may be in your respective faith or philosophy. Now, free, open, and non-monopol, I can't say that word, monopolistic markets. Uh, this does not mean laissez-faire, anything goes. One of the things John Paul II said was that. Yes, free competition, free markets, you know, and this, but within an understandable and strict juridical order. That means you've got principles that you operate on. It's not just, you know, you know, law of the jungle, lex talonis. Uh, and so, as Leo Thirteenth pointed out, again, in Rerum Novarum, section 45, let the working man and the employer make free agreements, and in particular, let them agree freely as to the wages. Nevertheless, there underlies a dictate of natural justice more imperious and ancient than any bargain between man and man." What Leo Thirteenth was saying was that let you know employers and employees bargain as equals to come to a just compensation. Uh, Unfortunately, in order to to do that, the the employees frequently are not in in a good bargaining position. Uh, That's why he said, you know, they should get, when workers don't own anything, they should be able to organize to to gain the bargaining power so that they can deal with employers as equals, not as adversaries, but as cooperative equals. Unfortunately, labor unionism has gotten into, the, and basically capitalism and socialism are both based on the class conflict model of industrial relations, which is not what we're talking about here. What, or what Leo XIII was talking about. It's not us versus them, it's all of us together. Unfortunately, U.S labor law assumes an adversarial relationship, so that suppose that you know management, and line workers wanted to negotiate and become part of the same organization so that we can work things out together. That's illegal. You can't do that in the US. You actually have to create separate classes within a company. They just assume this as a matter of course. Now, another thing we have to get into, and this is why it's one of the four pillars of a a just market economy, is restoration of the rights of private property. Now, a lot of people are fully aware that most corporations don't pay out their earnings. Some corporations don't pay out any earnings. I think a couple of years ago, some guy tried to sue Apple because he wasn't getting any dividends. Apple was just accumulating more and more and more cash, saying that they needed it for further acquisitions. Well, this was the same thing that Henry Ford was doing back in 1919, when the Dodge brothers, who were the second largest block of shareholders in the Ford Motor Company, said, it's our money, pay it to us. And the Michigan Supreme Court said, oh, no. Henry Ford has the right as the single largest shareholder and chairman of the board to say that you don't get your money because the company needs it. And the only way you can get it, and this is what was called this is why Dodge versus Ford Motor Company in 1919 was called, is called the first test of what they call the business judgment rule. The only way shareholders can get their dividends if the board of directors decides not to pay the dividends is to prove that the company does not need the money. Now, you see the flaw in logic there. You can't logically prove a negative. How is a shareholder supposed to prove that the company does not need the money? The board of directors should be in the position of proving to the shareholders that in order to withhold dividends, the company does need the money. They they should have to make the case, but under the business judgment rule as congealed into law by the Michigan uh, Supreme Court in 1919, they don't have to pay out dividends if they don't want to. So stock ownership in this country and throughout the world has gotten a bad name because the only way you can make money from stock, from stocks or corporate equity is to buy and sell it. In other words, the only way to make money off of of being a corporate owner is to divest yourself of corporate ownership because the board of directors is withholding the income from you, which you have a natural right to so that is why we say that a pillar of a just market economy is to restore the rights of private property premier among which is enjoyment of the fruits and control which minority shareholders don't have in every co- virtually every corporation in the world and but this contradicts what leo the 13th said in section 5 of rerum novarum which is a working man's little estate should be as completely at his full disposal as are the wages he receives for his labor. But it is precisely in such power of disposal that ownership obtains, whether the property consists of land or chattels. Now, chattel just means non-landed personal property. That's it. Uh, Unfortunately, we've got it linked in our minds with chattel slavery, which is human beings owned as personal possessions. But, Chattel itself is is a perfectly good word. Slave is not. Well, okay, slave is a perfectly good word. It's a perfectly evil thing. (laughs) Now, to move on, uh, we have to explain some things about private property. We went into this in much greater depth in a prior video, but it's useful to explain it now, especially within the parameters of economic justice, especially when talking about restoration of the rights of private property. We've we got the generic right of dominion and the universal destination of all goods. The generic right of dominion is access. Remember we said that the work of social justice in the realm of economics is to ensure equality of opportunity and access to the means of acquiring and possessing private property, among other things. Access is the same thing as the generic right of dominion. Every single human being, sui generis, has the right to be an owner. It's absolute. It is the right to be an owner inherent and without restriction, exception, or qualification in every single child, woman, and man. The right to property is part of human nature. It's an integral aspect of the capacity to become virtuous that defines human beings as human persons. Property is the normal means, you know, when we exercise it, of becoming virtuous. This is why Aristotle said that, you know, a household needs a modicum of property in order to function properly within the polis, within the the, the political organization, and so that people can become virtuous. And, of course, slaves aren't virtuous because they can't own, and they have no capacity for virtue, which, of course, we know is not true because every single human being has the analogously complete capacity to acquire and develop virtue, become virtuous, which private property is the primary means by primary means by which we do become virtuous there are other ways of course it's not exclusive but it's the primary means and the usual means for all us poor people who can't become hermits in the desert or become so sanctified that we don't need anything material frankly i do (laughs) Uh, the universal destination of all goods refers to use or the stewardship concept. And that is the universal destination of all goods refers to the socially determined bundle of rights that define how an owner may use what he or she owns. It is necessarily limited. It's not like the right to be an owner, which is absolute. The rights of ownership are necessarily limited or society would dissolve in chaos. And in exercise of private property, there is a fundamental tension balancing your private individual rights with the needs of other individuals and groups and demands of the common good. This is basically the art of politics. In other words, how do we ensure that society and individuals both get the optimal arrangement so that people can become virtuous, but that society can also function properly? It's not one or the other. The individualists say, "Oh, you don't need society. That's that's socialism. Uh, You just need to be able to do what you do as you will." You know the the Ayn Rand followers and that sort of thing. Uh, Then the, the the collectivists say, "Oh no no no! Individual rights interfere too much with you know the needs of society. Society is overwhelmingly important to the exclusion of the people for whom society was made." which, stop to think about it, doesn't really make all that much sense. Of course, as I said before, what is property? Property is the absolute right every child, woman, and man has to become an owner. And it's also the limited and socially determined bundle of rights that define how an owner may use what he or she owns. That is why restoration of the rights of private property is so important to a just market economy. Now, having said that, we'll make an exception. Uh, as Leo the Thirteenth pointed out, sometimes things aren't working right, and he says, "When what necessity demands has been supplied, and one's standing fairly taken care, taken thought for, it becomes a duty to give to the indigent out of what remains over." Now, that's an exception, and there are some people who say, "As long as there are people in need, no one has any right to anything." Well, yes, they do, because you have a duty to yourself first. Then to your dependents, then to other people. There is, there is a, a, a prior prioritization in this. He says, it is a duty not of Christian, not of justice, save in extreme cases, but of Christian charity, a duty not enforced by human law. What the socialists want to do is they do want people taken care of, and they do want it enforced by the state and a matter of human law. Uh, No, because what that does is say that you have no, it basically takes the virtue out of charity and makes it non-charity. You do not want to confuse justice and charity. Charity fulfills justice, it does not replace it. Distributive justice is not a euphemism for fake charity. Uh, Because once you remove the the voluntary... (laughs) I can't, the free will, sorry. Once you remove the free will from the practice of virtue, what you said it is it's not virtue. People aren't becoming virtuous, they're becoming slaves, automatons. Even if it says, oh no, you're not a slave, no one owns you. Well, if you're a permanent dependent of something, yes, you are. In fact, this is what uh, William Cobbett, who is called the Apostle of Distributism by by Chesterton, he said, freedom is not an empty sound. It is not an abstract idea. It is not a thing that nobody can feel. It means, and it means nothing else, the full and quiet, quiet enjoyment of your own property. If you have not this, if this be not well secured to you, you may call yourself what you will, but you are a slave. That's from A History of the Protestant Reformation in England and Ireland, paragraph 456, if you care. For some strange reason, I have that memorized. <laughs> uh, now, this also folds into, Cobbett was not a Catholic. He was a Protestant, and although he had great sympathy for Catholics and fought for their rights, and I think he greatly agitated for Catholic emancipation, which finally occurred in 1829, uh, He said he was a Protestant. He was proud of his heritage. He had no intention of becoming a Catholic. But Catholics have as many rights as Protestants. And if you look at the great and glorious England, of which they're so proud of, and their rights, he says, it all came from Catholic England, not Protestant England. He wasn't one of these who said that uh, the Church of England was really Catholic or something. But I think we got into branch theory in an earlier video. now, this all, of course, uh, it's all natural law theory. This isn't Catholic stuff. It's natural law stuff, which means it applies to every single human being, which is why Catholic social teaching is not just a Catholic thing. I, I, I think that uh, there, was, there was some Catholic economist, which is the way he referred to him himself, uh, who said that uh, he made the most ridiculous statement possible with respect to Catholic social teaching. He said something, and I, and I paraphrase cause I don't remember the exact quote that Jews because they are Jews have nothing in common with Catholic social teaching. Well, that is almost a retarded statement to make, because you're either saying that Jews are not human beings or that Catholic social teaching is not Catholic. I, it, it applies to everybody or it applies to nobody. That's, that, that's all there is to it. Uh, and then the whole point of it, and especially with respect to economics, is is what uh, Pius XI stated in Quadragesimo Anno. I think it was, uh, let me check here. Uh, oh, yeah, it was in section, paragraph 59, at least if you use the current Vatican translation. Sometimes they, once in a great while, they shift some of the paragraphs around or something for the translation. But that's not important. As Pius XI said, the redemption of the non-owning workers. This is the goal that our predecessor declared must necessarily be sought. Added to them is the huge army of rural wage workers pushed to the lowest level of existence and deprived of all hope of ever acquiring, quote, some property in land, unquote. He was using that as an example of what could be acquired, the sort of capital. And therefore, permanently bound to the status of non-owning worker, slave, which Leo Thirteenth called a yoke almost of slavery. Well, he didn't need the word almost. Unless suitable and effective remedies are applied. And what uh, Pius XI and Leo Thirteenth, of course meant was that private property will redeem the worker, not higher wages not being taken care of by state allowances that makes you a dependent of the state that makes you a dependent of a, of your private employer. No, only ownership will give you the status of a free person and give you an equal bargaining position with your employer. If you choose to have an employer, maybe you'll choose to go into business for yourself. You know, the distributist ideal, I'll have my own shop or farm or business. And, uh, I had a really good quote there, and I forgot what it was. (laughs) Uh, But basically, private property is the mark of a free person. I mean, Aristotle noted this. He um, actually, in the politics, called the non-owning, nominally free worker a masterless slave because he owned nothing. I mean, he was at the behest of anybody who would would hire him. In other words, he would didn't even have the advantage of an actual slave of having only one master. The non-owning worker had as many masters as, there, as he came across. And we went into the parable of the talents in the last video. But that was the point of it, is that in the parable of, of the talents, a slave owner gives management of wealth to three slaves to train them to become free men and to enter society as his equal. Remember the, the parable closes with "Come, share your master's joy. In other words, you are now my equal. You're as good as I am. You can become as virtuous as I am because you're an owner of private property. And the whole point of economic justice, which is to become, uh, you know, an, a capital owner on financially feasible and uh, ethical morally ethical, Manner is to free you up so that you can become virtuous, so that you can develop more fully as a human person and fit yourself for the final end for which God intended you. And well, next time I think we'll get into more what happened uh, to Vatican, you know, what happened with the Second Vatican Council. Uh, I'll explain that in much greater length. But you notice that, well, as I said, that we'll get into that. I said Vatican II should not be the, the bogeyman it is for a lot of people, but neither is is it the justification for what a lot of people have tried to turn it into. Okay.